Chapter 8 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Ullman. Chapter 8 Climbing and Mountaineering. Climbing. Climbing trees. Colonel Jackson, in his book, How to Observe, gives the following directions for climbing palms and other trees that have very rough barks. Take a strip of linen or two towels or strong handkerchiefs tied together and form a loop at each end for the feet to pass tightly into without going through. Or, for want of such material, make a rope of grass or straw in the same way. The length should embrace a little more than half of the diameter of the trunk to be climbed. Now, being at the foot of the tree, fix the feet well into the loops, and opening the legs a little, embrace the tree as high up as you can. Raise your legs, and, pressing the cord against the tree with your feet, stand, as it were, in your stirrups, and raise your body and arms higher. Hold fast again by the arms, open the legs, and raise them a stage higher, and so on to the top. The descent is effected in the same way, reversing, of course, the order of the movements, the ruggedness of the bark, and the weight of the body pressing diagonally across the trunk of the tree prevent the rope from slipping. Anything, provided it be strong enough, is better than a round rope which does not hold so fast. A loop or hoop embracing the body of the climber and the tree is a helpful addition. Large nails carried in a bag slung around the waist. To be driven into the bare trunk of the tree will facilitate its ascent. Gimlets may be used for the same purpose. High walls can be climbed by help of this description. A weight attached to one end of a rope being first thrown over the wall and the climber assisting himself by holding on to the other end. Trees of soft wood are climbed by cutting notches two feet apart on alternate sides. Also, by driving in bamboo pegs, sloping alternately to left or to right. These pegs correspond to the rungs of a ladder. Ladders. A notched pole or a knotted rope makes a ladder. We hear of people who have tied sheets together to let themselves down high walls when making an escape. The best way of making a long row from sheets is to cut them into strips of about six inches broad and with these to twist a two-stranded rope or else to plate a three-stranded one. Descending cliffs with ropes is an art which naturalists and others have occasion to practice. It has been reduced to a system by the inhabitants of some rocky coasts in the northern seas where innumerable seabirds go for the breeding season and whose ledges and crevices are crammed with nests full of large eggs about the end of may and the beginning of june there are no despicable prize to a hungry neighbor i am indebted to a most devoted rock climber the late mr woolley for the following of facts it appears that a whole population of rock climbers in the following places st kilda in the hybrids fola island in the shetland the Faroe Islands generally, and in the West Marvel Islands off Iceland. 
Flamborough Head used to be famous place for this accomplishment, but the birds have become far less numerous. They have been destroyed very wantonly with shot. In descending a cliff, two ropes are used. One, a supply, well-made, many-stranded, inch ropes, sea ropes, to which the climber is attached, and by which he is let down. The other is a much thinner cord, left to dangle over the cliff and made fast to some stone or stake above. The use of the second rope is for the climber to haul upon when he wishes to be pulled up. By resting a large part of his weight upon it, he makes the task of pulling him up much more easy. He can also convey signals by jerking it. A usual rock climbing arrangement is shown in the sketch. One man with a post behind him, as in figure one, or two men, as in figure two, are entrusted with the letting down of a comrade to the depth of a hundred or even a hundred and fifty feet. They pass the rope either under their thighs or along their sides, as shown in the figure. The climber is attached to the rope, as shown in figure two. The band on which he sits is of worsted. A beginner ought to be attached far more securely to the rope. I have tried several plans and find that which is shown in figure one to be thoroughly comfortable and secure. A stick forms the seat. At either end of it is a short stirrup. Garters secure the stirrup leathers to the knees. This is the belt under the arms. It is convenient but not necessary to have a well-greased leather sheath, a tube of 18 inches in length through which the rope runs as shown in both figures. It lies over the edge of the cliff, and the friction of the rock keeps it steadily in its place. It is nervous work going over the edge of a cliff for the first time. However, the sensation does not include giddiness. Once in the air, and when confidence is acquired, the occupation is very exhilarating. The power of locomotion is marvelous. A slight push with the foot or a thrust with a stick will swing the climber twenty feet to a side few rocks are so precipitous but that a climber can generally make some use of his hands and feet enough to cling to the rock when he wishes and to clamber about its face the wind is seldom a gale above but the air will be comparatively quiet upon the face and therefore there is no danger of a chance gush dashing the climber against the rocks a short stick is useful but not necessary there are three cautions to be borne in mind one as you go down test every stone carefully if the movement of the rope displaces any one of them after you have been let down below it it is nearly sure to fall upon your head because you will be vertically beneath it some climbers use a kind of helmet as a shield against these very dangerous accidents. 2. Take care that the rope does not become jammed in a cleft or you will be helplessly suspended in midair. Keep the rope pretty tight when you are clambering about the ledges, else if you slip, the jerk may break the rope or cause an overpowering strain upon the men who are holding it above. Turf and solid rock are much the best substances for the rope to run over. In the pharaohs, they tar the rope successively. They are absolutely polished with tar. Good ropes are highly valued. In St. Kilda, leather ropes are used. 
They last a lifetime and are dowry for a daughter. A new rope spins terribly. Leaping poles. In France, they practice a way of crossing a deep brook by the help of a rope passed round an overhanging branch of a tree and by its side. They take a run and swing themselves across, pendulum fashion. It is the principle of the leaping pole reversed. The art of climbing difficult places. Always face difficult places. If you slip, let your first effort be to turn upon your stomach, for in every other position you are helpless. A mountaineer, when he meets with a formidable obstacle, does not hold on the rock by means of his feet and his hands only, but he clings to it like a caterpillar with every part of his body that can come simultaneously into contact with its roughened surface. Snow Mountains Precaution. The real danger of the high Alps may be reduced to three. One, yielding of snow bridges over crevices. Two, slipping on slopes of ice. Three, the fall of ice or rock from above. Absolute security from the first is obtainable by tying the party together at intervals to a rope. If there be only two in the company, they should be tied together at eight or ten paces apart. Against the second danger, the rope is usually effective, though frightful accidents have occurred by the fall of one man, dragging along with him the whole chain of his companions. Against the third danger, there is no resource but circumspection. Ice falls chiefly in a heated day. It is from limestone cliffs that the falling rocks are nearly always detached. When climbing ice of the most moderate slope, nail boots are an absolute necessity, and for steep slopes of ice, the ice axe described below is equally essential. Alpine outfit consists of rope, ice axe or alpenstock there must be at least one ice axe in a party nailed boots colored spectacles veil or else a linen mask muffetees and gaiters i gave the following extracts from the report of a committee appointed by the alpine club in 1864 on ropes axes and alpenstocks ropes we have endeavored to ascertain what ropes will best stand the sharp jerk which would be caused by a man falling suddenly into a crevasse or down an ice slope and on this subject we lay before the club the results of nearly a hundred experiments made with various kinds of rope purchased of the best london makers we considered that the least weight with which it was practically useful to test ropes was twelve stone as representing the average weight of a light man with his whole alpine equipment. In the preliminary experiments, therefore, all ropes were rejected which did not support the strain produced by twelve stone falling five feet. Under this trial, all those plated ropes which are generally supposed to be so strong and many most carefully made twisted ropes gave way in such a manner as was very startling to some of our number, who had been in the habit of using these treacherous cords with perfect and most unfounded confidence. Only four ropes passed successfully through this trial. 
These were all made by Messrs. Buckingham and Son of 33 Broad Street, Bloomsbury, and can be procured only of them. We confine our further experiments to the ropes, one of which failed under severe tests, while the remaining three made respectively of manila hemp, Italian hemp, and flax prove so nearly equal in strength that it may fairly be doubted which is on the whole to be preferred. Each of these three ropes will bear twelve stone falling ten feet and fourteen stones falling eight feet, and it may be useful to say that the strain upon a rope loaded with a weight of fourteen stone and suddenly checked after a fall of eight feet is nearly equal to that which is caused by dead weight of two tons. None of these ropes, however, will bear the weight of a 14 stone falling 10 feet, and the result of our experiments is that no rope can be made, whether of hemp, flax, or silk, which is strong enough to bear that strain, and yet light enough to be portable. We believe that these ropes, which weigh about three quarters of an ounce to the foot, are the heaviest which can be conveniently carried about in the Alps. We append a statement of the respective merits of the three kinds, all of which are now made by Messrs. Buckingham, expressly for the club and marked by a red worsted thread twisted in the strand. Number one, Manila Hemp, weight of 20 yards, 48 ounces. Advantage is softer and more pliable than two, is more elastic than two and three. When wet, is far more pleasant to handle than two and three. Disadvantages has a tendency to wear and fray at a knot. Number two, Italian hemp. Weight, 20 yards, 43 ounces. Advantages is less bulky than one and three, is harder and will probably wear best, being least likely to cut against the rocks. Disadvantages is more still and difficult to untie than one and three. When wet, is very disagreeable to handle and, and is apt to kink. Number three, flax. Weight of 20 yards, 44 ounces. Advantages, when dry, is softer, more pliable, and easier to handle than one and two, and will probably wear better than one. Disadvantages, when wet, becomes decidedly somewhat weaker and is nearly as disagreeable to handle as two. Knots. There can be no doubt that every knot in a rope weakens its power of resisting a sudden jerking strain. How great a loss of strength results from a knot we cannot undertake to estimate, but that the loss is a very serious one. The following statement will show. These ropes, which we report will resist the strain of 14 stone falling 8 feet, will not resist it if there is a knot in any one of them, or even if the knots used in attaching them to the point of support or to the weights be roughly or carelessly made. The rope in these cases breaks at the knot for two reasons, partly because of the folds, as they cross in the knot are strained suddenly across each other, 
and one of them is cut through, and partly because the rope is so sharply bent that the outer side of each fold in the knot is much more stretched than the inner side, so that the strain comes almost entirely upon one side only of each fold. For the first reason, we found it necessary to put a pad of some kind inside the knot. Leather, linen, or a little tow or waist rope will do. For the second reason, we preferred knots in which the folds are at least sharply bent around each other, that is, in which the curves are large. We therefore conclude that, first, no knot which is not absolutely necessary ought to be allowed to remain on the rope. Second, the tighter and harder a knot becomes, the worse it is. Third, the more loose and open a knot is made, the better it is, and we append diagrams of these knots, which we found by experiment, weakens the rope least. For alpine ropes, only three sorts of knots are ever required, and we suggest one of each kind. Number one is for the purpose of joining two ends. Number two, for the purpose of making a loop at one end. Number three is for the purpose of making a loop in the middle where the ends are fastened. Number four is a knot of which we give a diagram in order that no one may imitate it. It is one of those which must weaken the rope. The only one which seems to be equally injurious is the common single knot, of which no diagram is necessary, as the ropes which we have recommended are very liable to become untwisted unless the loose ends are secured. We advise travelers, in order to avoid knots, to have the ends of every piece of rope bound with waxed twine. It should also be known that it is very unsafe to join two pieces of rope by looping one end through the other, so that when the jerk comes, they will be strained across each other as two links of a chain are strained across each other. Unless a pad of some kind divides the loops, one will cut the other through. Axes. The axe made in England for the purpose of being taken out to Switzerland may be divided into two classes, namely traveler's axes intended to be used for chipping a few occasional steps for enlarging and clearing out those imperfectly made, and for holding on to a snow slope, and guides axes, which are the heavier implements required for making long staircases in hard blue ice. We have had three models prepared, of which diagrams are appended. The first two represent the lighter axe, or what we have termed the traveler's axe, and the third, the heaviest instrument, required for guide's work. Diagram number one represents a light axe or pick of a kind somewhat similar to that recommended by Mr. Stephen in a paper published a short time ago in the journal. It has, in the first place, the great advantage of lightness and handiness. While it is a single blade, to some extent combines the step-cutting qualities possessed by the two cutters of the ordinary double-headed axe, though the latter instrument is on the whole decidedly superior. The small hammer-headed axe, though the latter instrument is on the whole decidedly superior, 
the small hammer head at the back is added in order to balance the pick and in some degree to improve the hold when the axe head comes to be used as a crutch handle this form it should be understood we recommend on account of its lightness and of its convenient shape diagram number two represents a traveler's axe slightly heavier than the first and this is the shape which appears to us the best adapted for mountain work of all kinds we desire shortly to state our reasons for recommending it to the members of the club in the first place it is absolutely necessary that one of our cutters should be made in the form of a pick as this is by far the best instrument for hacking into hard ice and is also extremely convenient for holding on to a snow slope or hooking into crannies or on to ledges of rocks for the other cutter we recommend an adez shaped blade and we are convinced that this is the form which will be found most generally useful as being best suited for all the varieties of step cutting the hatchet shaped blade used by the chamonix guides is no doubt a better implement for making a staircase diagonally up a slope but on the other hand it is exceedingly difficult to cut steps downward with a blade set on in this manner and as mountaineers really come down the way by which they went up if they can help it it is obvious that the objections to the chamonix form of axe is conclusive we recommend that the edge of the blade should be angular instead of circular although the latter shape is more common because it is clear that the angular edge cuts into frozen snow more quickly and easily the curve which is the same in all the axes approaches to coincidence with the curve described by the axe in making the stroke a curve is in our opinion desirable in order to bring the point more nearly opposite the center of percussion and to make the head more useful for holding on to rocks or a slope the axe shown in diagram two though slightly heavier the number one is not of sufficient weight or strength for cutting a series of steps in hard ice. To those gentlemen, therefore, who do not object to carrying weight, but who desire to have an axe fit for any kind of work, we recommend number three, as this is exactly similar in shape to number two, differing from it only in size. We have not thought it necessary to give a separate diagram of number three as to the mode of fastening which is the same in all three axes we should have felt some diffident in giving an opinion had we not been fortunate enough to obtain the advice of an experienced metal worker by whom we were strongly recommended to adapt the fastening shown in the diagrams as being the method generally considered best in the trade for attaching the heads of hatches or large hammers likely to be subject to very violent strains. It will be seen that the axe head and fastening are forged in one solid piece. The fastening consisting of two strong braces or straps of steel which are pressed into the wood about one-eighth of an inch and are secured by two rivets, passed through the wood and clenched on each side. 
the braces are put at the side instead of in front orb and behind the axe because by this means the strain which falls on the axe acts against the whole breadth of the steel fastening and not against their thickness merely we believe that this is the firmest method of fastening which can be adopted and that so long as the wood is sound it is scarcely possible for the head of the axe to get loose or to come off and has the further advantage of strengthening the wood instead of weakening it and of distributing the strain produced by step cutting over a large bearing it should be added that these axe heads and fastenings ought to be made entirely of steel the dimensions of the axe heads are as follows number one length of blade measured from the wood four and a half inches breadth of blade at widest part one and a half inches weight including the braces thirteen and a half ounces number two length of blade measured from the wood three and a half inches length of pick four and a half inches breadth of blade at widest part one and three quarter inches breadth of pick zero one half inch weight including the braces fifteen and one half ounces number three length of blade measured from the wood four inches length of pick five inches breadth of blade at widest part two one quarter inches breadth of pick zero five eighth of an inch weight including the braids twenty one and one quarter ounces we much desire to recommend to the club some means by which the axe head might be made movable so as to be capable of being put on and taken off the handle quickly and easily we regret to say however that we were unable to discover any plan by which this could be effectively done we examined very carefully the numerous and formidable weapons which had been sent in by members for exhibition most of which had elaborate contrivances for fastening on the axe head these were all however liable to very serious objections some were evidently insecure with others it was necessary that the axe head should be surrounded by a huge knob which would prove a most serious impediment in step cutting while in the best and firmest which we found the axe head was attached to the pole by means of nuts and screws projecting at the side or over the top of the axe this latter method of fastening seems to us awkward and possibly dangerous as the nuts from their position are very likely to become loose or to get broken off and cannot except when dangerously loose be fastened or unfastened without a key or wrench a troublesome article certain to be lost on the first expedition the handle of the axe should we think be made of ash we recommend this wood in preference to deal which is lighter and nearly as strong because in choosing a piece of ash it is easier to select with certainty thoroughly sound and well seasoned wood and in preference to hickory and lancewood which are stronger because these woods are extremely heavy the handle should we believe be a very slightly oval form and it is then more convenient to the grasp than if round as to the thickness of the wood we are satisfied 
it ought nowhere to be less than one and three-eighths inch since a pole of that diameter made of ordinary good ash is the smallest which cannot be permanently bent by a heavy man's most violent effort although we have seen some pieces of unusually strong ash of a less thickness which proved inflexible we recommend then that the oval section of the handle should have a shorter diameter of one and three-eighths inch and a longer diameter of one and one-half inch and that the thickness should be the same from one end to the other the length of the handles for numbers one and two should be such that they will reach to just under the arm at the shoulder the handle for number three which is intended to be used exclusively as an axe should be between three and a half and four feet long the lower end of the handle should be strengthened in the usual way by a ferrule and armed with a spike the spike should be from three and a half to four inches long clear of the end of the handle and should be prevented from moving by a slight rivet passed through it near the upper end after it is fastened in the exact form of the spike and ferrule are represented in the diagram we have further to recommend for axe handles an addition which is liable to suspicion as an entire innovation but which we are confident will be found valuable at those critical moments when the axe is required to hold up two or three men it has happened that when the axe has been struck into the snow a man has been unable to keep his hold on the handle which slips out of his hand and leaves him perfectly helpless to guard against this mischance we propose to fasten a band of leather round the handle at a distance of a foot from the ferrule at the lower end this leather should be about an eighth of an inch thick and will be quite sufficient to check the hand when it is sliding down the handle it should be lashed round the wood and strained tight when wet alpenstock what we have said about the handle of the axe applies in all respects to the alpenstock except that the length of the latter should be different and that the leathern ring which of course not required it is generally thought most convenient that the alpenstock should be high enough to touch the chin of its owner as he stands upright but this is a matter on which it is scarcely possible and were it possible scarcely necessary to lay down an absolute rule end of extract of report boots several nails are sure to be knocked out after each hard day's work therefore a reserve supply is necessary in lands where none other are to be found no makeshift contrivance so far as i am aware will replace the iron last used by shoemakers when they hammer nails into the boot this is a well-known contrivance of screws with jagged heads for screwing into boots when a little ice has to be crossed they do excellently for occasional purposes but not for regular ice work as they are easily torn out crampons are soles of leather with spikes they are tied over the shoes but neither english mountaineers nor modern guys ever employ them nailed boots are better snow spectacles the esquimaux who has no colored glass 
or any equivalent for it, cut a piece of soft wood to the curvature of the face. It is about two inches thick and extends horizontally quite across both eyes, resting on the nose, a notch being cut in the wood to answer the purpose of the bridge of a pair of spectacles. It is tied behind the ears, and so far as I have now described, it would exclude every ray of light from the eyes. Next, a long narrow slit of the thickness of a thin saw cut is made along the middle almost from end to end. Through this slit, the wearer can see very fairly as it is narrower than the diameter of the pupil of his eyes. The light that reaches his retina is much diminished in quantity. Crepe and gauze is a substitute for colored glass. Mask is merely a pocket handkerchief with strings to tie it over the face. Eye holes are cut in it, also a hole for the nose over which protecting triangular piece of linen is thrown and another hole opposite the mouth. To breathe through it, it is drawn below the chin so as to tie firmly in place. The mask prevents the face from being cut to pieces by the cold, dry winds, and blistered by the powerful rays of the sun reverberated from the snow. End of chapter 8 Recording by Gary Ullman